We are in 1 Samuel uh, 24, and if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Before we jump into that, though, I wanted to share two things. Um, One uh, was something that happened to me this week. It didn't really happen to me. It was just an incident, I guess. I walked into a very large store in Traverse City, um, like big, I don't give the store's name, but it's a very large store, like one of those home stores, right? And right when I came in, there's a big giant lobby, I'm masked up, everyone's masked up. A masked man with a large booming voice announced my arrival. (laughs) Doors open, John Vermilia, how are you doing? I almost left and went to the car. (laughs) But uh, I I just was thinking maybe we should do that uh, here in Buckley or in Manistee or wherever. You know, when you come to church, your your name should be announced. I was thinking maybe we'll start that. Uh, And I'm totally kidding. But the point in telling you this is um, is a friend of mine, and it's someone that goes to this church, but hasn't been in quite a while. Uh, But super friendly, came over, started to shake my hand, and he worked there, and he was like, sorry, I'm on camera, can only do the elbow, chicken wing. So we did the chicken wing thing. Um, And then he told me something that was incredibly encouraging. You know, he just asked about his family, asked about mine, so forth and so on. And then he said this. He said, hey, we're still members of the tabernacle. And I was like, that's great. Uh, Why do you? And he said, well, we haven't been there since the pandemic. And he said, you got to understand, my wife's at risk, and uh, her family's at risk, and we just can't risk it. But we watch every week, and we give online, and we're members, and we're going to come back when this is all over. And that was super encouraging. And so, I don't know if you're encouraged by that, but I just want to say to everyone who's watching or listening, who still considers this church to be their church, we love you, we miss you, we get it, and uh, I want to say thank you. Thank you to those people, because I get to sit, yeah, might as well, yeah, might as well, yeah. I get to sit in our board meetings, and when we go through the financials, we haven't given you that update in a long time, the annual meeting's coming up, and you'll hear more boring stuff later, but God continues to provide um, for our church. Somehow, we've successfully learned how to not pass buckets, right? And, and people are putting their uh, tithes and offerings in the red boxes, and they're giving online. And even people that haven't been here in over a year are still giving and still consider this to be part of their church uh, because they're participating online. So we're going to get through this. It's going to be great. And who knows? Maybe we'll never pass buckets again. Uh, that might be cool if we can figure it out. But remember, God's watching. So um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. The second thing is I do want to speak about... Uh, this series that will start next week and will go for six weeks. The series is called Rattle. And uh, we're going to take a break um, from the Samuel series, not because Samuel series hasn't been engaging or God doesn't have some really cool things in there for us. But I have felt specifically, and I I think most or or many of our leaders would agree, um, that we need this. Uh, This isn't necessarily a series we would say, hey, invite all your friends to. Uh, You're free to do that. But Rattle, this series is really aimed at us. It's really aimed at us. I've just had this sense that somehow our church, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just me, we've lost a little sense of urgency. And uh, a lost sense of urgency is um, the beginning of the death of a church. If we lose a sense of urgency, Christians are, are, are meant to live with a sense of urgency. Not, now, that's not anxiety. That's not fear. But a sense of urgency that the time 
and the breath and the gifts and the abilities and the resources that we've been given, we're stewards of because there's more to life than just this. That's the sense of urgency. And that every moment matters. And there's people far from God that don't know God. And we exist to love God and to love people and to make disciples. And, and, and I think we need to be rattled just a little bit. And so this series is going to be different than any other series we've ever done before. Um, it'll lead us right up to Easter. Uh, and then there'll be three weeks after. And you won't want to miss it. Even if you're going on spring break or whatever, you're going to want to dial in and participate. Because it's not just a weekend thing. Um, we're asking, um, anyone who considers this church to be their church home, uh, to start praying with us, to start, um, refocusing, if you will, you know, I'm just going to get over myself and put it this way. Back in the old days, they called it revival and we need one. We need one when, you know, we, we, we as a staff had, had someone come in and rattle us a little bit. And he challenged us this way. He challenged us about the sense of urgency. And he challenged us, um, are we serving God without really seeking the heart of God? Are we working for God but not really engaging in worship with God? Are we distracted? Are we comfortable? Are we complacent? So uh, hopefully that'll just rattle your cage a little bit. And uh, it might scare a few people. I mean, that's scary. But you know, we don't like to take risks here. So, uh, so anyways, um, 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll dive right in, and, and this will be the last uh, installment before, before we take this little break. Um, we're watching Saul slide, and it's getting faster and faster. And uh, he, he goes back and forth between pursuing David and then God saves David or David, you know, slips through his fingers or, or, you know, someone intervenes and helps save him. Be careful if you intervene and try to help save David. Uh, you know, as we learned two weeks ago, uh, Saul is so hell bent on murder, he's starting to kill other people. He doesn't care who gets in his way. When he killed uh, 85 prophets of God and then destroyed uh, their homes and, and every man, woman, and child from the village of Nob. So it's amping up. It's, it's escalating. And so in uh, chapter 24, we get to one of the most remarkable stories in this saga. And uh, uh, it's even just a little bit hard to believe. So here we go. Verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. 
to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So we have to pause right there because that was just written in black and white in God's holy scripture. A pit stop, a rest stop. As it just so happens, Saul's got 3,000 chosen men, right? He's not going to have anyone else say that they'll refuse to kill whoever he wants killed. So he's got the shock troops. They're pursuing David into the En Gedi. And Saul needs to do what all the rest of us have to do from time to time. Buckley Campus, do you have a pulse? He probably had to do a number two, okay? And he wanted a little privacy. And in the region of En Gedi, there's a lot of caves. Hey, don't look at, some of you looking at me this way. It's in the Bible. I just read that to you. Don't be all like, like you don't. Well, maybe not in a cave. That's true. But, well, Saul goes into a cave and it just so happens that David's hiding in there. Now, I highly doubt that David was in there with 400 guys having a whisper contest. They probably saw them coming. There was no other place to go. He and a few maybe were inside the cave and and they're trying to get out of the way. And then they see Saul coming up to that part of the cave. And they're like, are you kidding? This is the chance. It's Saul. He's coming into this cave. He's all alone. Let's kill him. And, and, And so while they're hiding, David's got a decision to make. And, and we don't know, did he take off his robe to do whatever he had to do? See how I'm dancing? We don't know, but he stealthily creeps up, cuts off a piece of the robe, and then it says his heart struck him. What does that mean? His conscience. He says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I may be anointed to be the king, but I don't take matters into my own hands. Wait a minute. He's the Lord's anointed too. He's the king of this country. And I'm not going to kill him. And he wouldn't let his men kill him. And he even felt bad that he cut off a piece of the robe. So there's this awkward Bible moment. Aren't you glad you came this weekend? Yeah. Come on. It's it's, it's, this. Hey, holy scriptures, right? So that's all the action. The rest of the chapter is speeches. David's going to give a speech. And Saul's going to give a speech. Here's David's speech. Starting in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. 
after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. That's quite a speech. Would you agree? That's quite a speech and he lays it out. And so he's actually taking a bit of a risk here. He's, he's taking a risk that there's just a little bit of sanity left in this guy. Because remember, he's still got his back up against a cave wall, a rock wall, a canyon of some kind. And this is the king and there's 3,000. But he takes a chance and he comes out. He reveals himself. He calls him my Lord. He bows down. He calls him father. Look at the affinity. Look at the affection here. This is a man who wants to murder him. But this is also David, a man after God's own heart. And, and, and he gives him a logical argument, a logical speech. He said, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Here's the proof. Here's the proof. Now, what's also not said is, I saw you in a, in a state of undress, right? I've seen you not very glorified. And I could have killed you, but I did not. In fact, my men wanted me to kill you, but I did not. You know why? Because that's not for me to do. You're the Lord's anointed. Far be it for me to kill my own king. But he goes further. He tells him, I haven't sinned against you. You're trying to kill me. He refers to himself. He goes, I'm nothing. I'm a dead dog. I'm like a flea. What's the big deal? But then he appeals to God. He goes straight to God. He says, God will avenge me. I'm not going to avenge myself. God will handle my case. I don't have to worry about it. May God judge between me and you. My goodness, there's a sermon right in there for many of us. Right there, there's a sermon. How many times do we feel the need to take matters into our own hands? On Facebook. Or social media. Or with a referee, because God really cares about your child's three-point shooting percentage. He'll ask about that when you stand before him, I'm sure not, right? We love to take matters into our own hands. It says in Romans chapter 12, that vengeance is not for us. We're not to take revenge. As it is written, I will avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. And it's not just against our enemies. What about the vengeance you love to take out against your spouse? Well, I'll show her. Well, I'll get him. Against your parents or so forth and so on. David says, no, that's not for me to touch. That's not for me to touch. I could have killed you, but I did not. I turned away from that. I'm going to appeal to God instead. That's his stance. Here's Saul's speech, his response. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. 
and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now that last little part there, there's, there's a little bit of foreshadowing. There's a little bit of a dot, 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 because it sounds like, oh, finally, the chase is over. It's the end of the Western. The posse's done, you know, cha- you know, chasing Jesse James and the James gang, or really David and his mighty men, right? But that's not the case. It says Saul went home, but David stayed out in the wilderness, right? So Saul, essentially, this is his speech. His speech is given through his tears. In fact, that's the title of this message. The whole chapter to me, this is Saul's tears. Saul's crocodile tears to a certain degree. Now, I think Saul is really moved. I I think it's a combination of fear and it's also he's been exposed. He realizes that David has done something that he wouldn't have done. He would have killed David first chance he had. But it's right there. It's spelled out. I could have killed you, but I didn't. I mean you no harm. And Saul calls him son. And he begins to weep. And he says, I see this, man. You're you're more righteous than me. Now I know that you're going to be the king. I know that you'll be the king. He says, may the Lord bless you for this. There's really no apology, though, is there? There's really no, man, I was just a little, you know, come on. I'm sorry, bro. I mean, there's not even a bro. Instead, in verse 21, all he wants David to do is swear to him that he won't kill his kids. He sees the inevitable. He's struck to the heart. Mentally, he gets it. He gets it. There's been too many close calls, and now David could have killed him. He knows what the end game is. Enough that he'll admit it. But the reason I said it doesn't really resolve is this is what we're going to find out. In two chapters, and and, and this is a spoiler alert, that really doesn't matter because it'll be about nine or ten weeks from now. Six, seven, no, eight if I do my math right. It'll be eight weeks from now. We're going to find out in chapter 26, Saul goes back to trying to kill David. Did you hear that? Saul's going to go right back to trying to kill David. But he cried. I know. But he realizes David's going to be the king. Yep. But David promised. Can't negotiate with terrorists. What is this chapter about? For me, as I look at the kindness of David... But ultimately, the wickedness of Saul, I'm reminded again of Jesus. I'm reminded of the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. You see, in Romans chapter 2, it says about God that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And for me, this chapter is all about repentance. When someone sees their sin... And has an opportunity to turn from sin. It's got to be about repentance. David shows kindness to Saul. This is a chance. This is like an olive branch. 
Saul could have turned, and, and it almost looks like he does, except there's something that's really kind of missing. Saul has tears. He sees sin too. Both of them had a little prick of conscience take place, right? For David, it was, oh, this is the Lord's anointed. I, I, I shouldn't do this. I can't kill him. I shouldn't have even cut his robe. I feel bad about that. No, we're not going to kill him. We're going to trust God. We're not going to commit this sin. And Saul too, for a moment at least, he, he, he could have pressed the attack. He could have sounded the alarm. He could have drew his sword. He could have chucked another spear, although he's not a very good shot. Keeps missing if you've been with us, right? At least get someone else to do it, but he doesn't. So both of them get emotional. Both of them appeal to logic. Both of them <laughs> kind of back down. But only one of them will be rewarded by God as king. And we'll find in two chapters, one of them is going to go right back to trying to kill the other. What's the difference? I think it all has to do with repentance. True repentance turns from sin and runs toward God. True repentance turns from sin and runs toward God. God. Now, before I say another word, if we're going to be talking about repentance and most of us here that are coming to church on a weekend or in Manistee or wherever you are, it's like, well, I already know repentance. I'm already a Christian. Can we get on to the more thick stuff? Here, here's, the, here's the problem. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. I believe repentance is a lifestyle. In fact, in parts of Eastern Europe where they used to uh, uh, have to worship in secret when they were communists, they had to find a way in order to differentiate the real church, the true believers, the evangelicals from like the kind of false facade uh, uh, state church. And so, so uh, you couldn't even call yourself Christian uh, without people going, well, like a real Christian, do you handle snakes kind of Christian? And, and I'm told that the true biblical Christians in the Eastern Bloc churches, you know what they refer to themselves as? Repenters. You're a Christian, are you Catholic, are you Greek Orthodox, are you state church, are you the communist propped up? No, we're the repenting church. What does that mean? It's this, it's, it's we live a life of true repentance and true repentance turns from sin and it runs toward God. Now repentance in the Bible, I, I spent a lot of this week geeking out on that word. It's a, you know, <laughs> you can spend a lot of time geeking out on the word repentance. So I hope you're okay being here for a while. No, I just want to give you the highlight show, really. Essentially, this is repentance, all right? Please don't check out on me because I think some of your eternal destinies depend on this. I really do. You can be in the church a long time and never be a true repenter. Repentance means a change. There's a change, essentially. A change in my mind, a change in my heart, a change in my action. There's a change... Involving my intellect, the change involves my emotion, and the change involves my will. Now, repentance does not mean being perfect, but there is a change. Are you with me so far? Now, here's another fun thing that I don't have time to flesh out because I don't get it all the way in my head yet. And I don't think that's a bad thing as a preacher to admit. There's some things I don't get all the way yet, right? In scripture, we are commanded to repent, if you go through the book of Acts, it says that God commands men everywhere to repent and turn to him. It's a command. However, the book of Acts and elsewhere also repentance is referred to as a gift. God has granted we Gentiles the gift of repentance. So it's a command and a gift. I can't figure that out. 
How can I do it if I haven't been gifted? Well, apparently, yeah, different geek out week. But I understand command. It's a change involving the mind, the heart, and the action. Now, if you just think about the story, both David and Saul, there was a change in the mind. Both of them were moved in their hearts. But only one of them lived a life of continual repentant action. And that was David. Not perfectly. Get into 2 Samuel. Stick with us. You're going to find out not a great husband, uh, not a very faithful husband, uh, not a very good friend, uh, pretty much a murderer, a liar, so forth and so on. But true repentance turns from sin and runs toward God. Acts chapter 26 is helpful if, uh, if you want to flip over there real quick, even if you don't, we'll put it up on the screen uh, so you can see it. Um, Acts 26, Paul is preaching, and he's preaching before King Agrippa. And the details of that aren't as important as what he says right here in verse 19 and 20. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He's speaking about uh, Christ appearing to him on the Damascus road. That's when... Paul became a Christian. He says, I I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that, get this, they should repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God. There's a command. So I turn from sin, and I run towards God. Repent and turn to God. But get this, performing deeds in keeping With their repentance. You see being a Christian is more than just praying a prayer. It's more than just mentally agreeing. Even being moved. No, 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 no. I had tears. I mentally agree that there's a God in in my heart. You know, I believe that there's a God. Yeah, but have you really turned in your actions? Did you catch that last thing? He said performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is what the book of James talk about. Faith without works is dead. Well, John, I thought you said that we're saved by faith alone. I had a, I had a, I had a seminary professor by the name of Norman Geisler. He, he, he would always say this. He would say, yeah, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. Parentheses, works always come with it. Works always come with it. And guys, I'm not talking about being perfect. But some of us, man, we, we've bought into easy believism, I'm afraid. I don't know. It's between you and God. You know, some of us say, you know, I'm really struggling with this sin. Hey, how long have you been struggling with that sin? Oh, 40 years. Now, I'm not talking about a desire or a propensity, but if you're still wallowing in the same sin for 40 years... I'm not sure you've repented of that sin. I think you turn from God and run to the sin. Well, that's just the way I was raised. Oh, you know how I feel about that. There's another scripture that helps us in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, Paul is talking, and, and, and he, he's talking in 2 Corinthians because he wrote 1 Corinthians, and he was pretty mad. <laughs> 
And uh, he, he said some really hard things to the first Corinthians and they got sad about it. But, you know, then there was some other letter. In fact, it may not have been first. It may have been the real second Corinthians, which we've kind of lost. So what we call second might be third. That's not important. But anyways, maybe the Holy Spirit just got rid of it because Saul said some things he shouldn't have. It was explicit rated. All right. So chapter seven, verse nine, this is what he says. He goes, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Guys, you following with me so far? So we're on a study of what this repentance is about. He goes, I rejoice not because I made you sad, but because you were sad enough to repent. So it involves the emotion. It means that thing that I used to do, now I hate. That life that I used to live, I hate that life. That lifestyle I used to live, I hate that life. I don't want that life. That sin, I've turned from it, and now I'm running towards you. I'm running towards you. So he says, because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And now here's the key, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. So what he's saying is there's two types of grief. There's the godly kind of grief. Or in the NIV it says godly sorrow. That leads to repentance which leads to salvation and eternal life. Worldly sorrow brings death. And I think that there's a lot of people that come to our church or other churches or call themselves Christians that they see their sin and they know that it's sin mentally. They know in their heart that it's sin. It actually brings them to tears and they just love God and they're so grateful that God loves them. But I don't believe they've ever really repented because they don't hate their sin enough to change. This is a hard message to give. Sometimes the truth hurts. I didn't write that verse. You got tears? Was it godly or worldly? Because apparently, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. You see, it's possible to be ashamed but not change. It's possible to be sad because you got caught like Saul and not change. It's possible to have the big argument, the big fight, the big throwdown, the big showdown, the big exposure, the it'll never happen again. I'm never going back there and da, 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 da. And really all it was, was there was a crash. There was a huge conflict of either someone got caught or it came to a head But if there's no change, there's no repentance. If there's no change, there's no repentance. True repentance turns from God or turns from sin and runs toward God. False repentance turns from God and runs towards sin. Runs right back where it came from. And that's who Saul is in the story. That's who Saul is. Because if you just read this chapter, it's like, oh, good. It's a happy ending. It's not. That's why I gave you the spoiler alert, because this chapter doesn't make sense without the spoiler alert. A couple examples besides David and Saul. 
There's a story in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus going to a a town. We don't necessarily know the name of the town. I think we know the region, but he, he's going into this town and all these crowds are following him and, you know, people want to touch him. People want to talk to him. People want to be his friend. People want to see a miracle. You know, it, word has spread, right? And there's this one guy and his name's Zach. And he's a short guy. Some of you know the story. And, and he couldn't see Jesus. But he saw the crowd, and so he ran ahead, and he climbed up in a tree so he could see Jesus. Now, what you need to know about this guy named Zach, his last name was Eus, um, Mr. Zach Eus, he, uh, uh, he was a horrible man. He was a thief. He was a tax collector. In fact, he was the chief of the tax collectors. And the tax collectors in Jesus' time, they were the sellouts, man. They were the thieves. They were the, they were the liars. They were the collaborators. They worked with the Romans, no one liked them, and they, and they provided for themselves by jacking up the taxes and, and giving less to the Romans and keeping some for themselves. Well, this guy, Zach, short guy up in the tree so we can see Jesus, Jesus sees him, and he calls him down. He says, hey, I want to go to your house today. I want to stay in your house today. And of course, the crowd's like, what in the world? You can't go hang out with him. You're a rabbi. You're holy. And we're reminded that Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. I, you know, physician doesn't come for the, for the well. I came for the sick. And this guy's really sick. So he goes to his house, has a big dinner. And all the whisper, whisper, whispers going on. And whatever happened at that dinner was life-changing. Because at that dinner, Zach, Eus, came face-to-face with God in flesh. Jesus the Christ. And he was forever changed. And he stood up and gave his own speech. Do you remember his speech? He said, half of everything I own, I'm going to give to the poor. And he said it publicly. Everyone's here. And he said it in front of God himself. Half of everything I own, I give to the poor. And any of you that I've stolen from, I will pay you back four times what I owed you. I want to know what was in that sermon. I want to know what it was that they talked about at dinner. But it changed his mind. It changed his heart. And it changed his actions. He met the real Jesus and he turned from sin and he ran towards God. How do we know? Jesus finished that little passage by saying, it says that Jesus was very glad and said, salvation has come to this house today because there was a change. Now, please don't hear me say something I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we can manufacture change. You can't. I mean, you can try. I mean, I mean there's, there's effort that we get to put in. But it's kind of like with revival. You can want to be revived all day. You, wanna, you may want to be rattled all day. But unless God shows up. But I think we need a change of mind. Some of us a change of heart. Many of us, myself included, a change of action. That's what true repentance is. that turns from sin and runs towards God. You know, I'm thinking even right now of Peter and Judas. Two of Jesus' closest, or two of Jesus closest friends because they were 12, or one of the 12 disciples. And you'll remember what happened that horrible night. The night before he went to the cross to face death alone. One of them betrayed him. That was Judas. Peter denied him. Not once, not twice, three times. 
Both of them felt terrible about it. Both of them realized that it was sin. Both of them even cried. Only one of them was restored. What's the difference? Well, true repentance turns from sin and it runs toward God. If we don't do that, we're like what it says in the book of Proverbs. As a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool return to his folly, right? The gospel invites us to run toward God. I believe Saul had a chance here. He, had a, I mean, he was preserved. He had to be preserved in that moment by God because David's heart was struck. He was moved. He was moved to the point, this righteous man, I'm not going to raise my hand against him. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Saul felt it, but it wasn't real. It only lasts one chapter. One chapter. So what about you? What about us? What about here in Buckley, in Manistee, wherever you're watching or listening? When faced with your sin, do you run to hide it? Do you run to cover it up? Do you run to keep it in a special place so you can return to it whenever you want to? Save it for rainy days and special occasions and when you get really, really stressed out. Or when you're confronted with your sin, do you turn from it? Mind, heart, action. And like the prodigal, do you run towards God? What would it look like if we lived lives like that? Continual repentance, a lifestyle of repentance. That's who we're called to be. And I believe that it's no mistake, and we didn't plan this, but it's no mistake that this comes on the eve of us kicking off the rattle series. There's going to be no single home run moment of repentance. I don't believe that. I think it begins with those little one by one. I turn from that, run towards you. I'm going to turn from that and run toward. Oh, that's a sin too. I'm turning from that and I'm running towards you. And it's a Godward life continually running towards him. That's what Jesus invites us to do. That's what he invites us to do. Would you bow your heads with me? My challenge this week for all of us, one church, two locations, the tabernacle, is that we would begin to pray for the gift of repentance. If scripture says it's a gift and you could go look it up, God, would you give me the gift of repentance? Not my husband, not my wife, not my kids, not them, not that campus, those people. God, would you grant me the gift of repentance? Would you show me the areas of my life where you want me to turn and run towards you? Secondly, we could be men and women of students that obey God's command to repent. Where he shows us to run towards him. To run towards him. To begin that continual life. Turning from sin. Running towards God. God, that's my prayer. You know my heart. You know what we need. 
thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.